Mark chapter 7, and verses 1 to 23 this evening. Before we start, I just want to clear up one thing, because it's got nothing to do with with the message, but it may confuse a few people. In the um, NIV, um, if you want to play a trick on somebody, ask them to find Mark chapter 7, verse 16. And if you try and do that, you'll find uh, that it isn't there. It doesn't exist. And that's because the... um, Basically, in very short, uh, there are various manuscripts that have been found uh, that are used to translate the Bible, and this is translated using an older manuscript, in other words, closer to uh, when, it was, when it all happened, and they found that verse 16 uh, was a later edition rather than in the original, so it's in some older translations that are based on newer um, uh, scrolls, basically. But if you've got any questions or want to debate it with me, then come and see me afterwards. But it's not that important, so don't worry about it. But I just didn't want people to be confused in the middle of the message, thinking, where is verse 16? But it is quite funny if you're playing a trick on children or something like that. Okay, so with that cleared up, um, it's page 1009 in the Church Bibles and page 1567 in the Large Print Bibles. Okay. I don't know if how, if how, how many of you have ever seen this kind of a picture before or heard the phrase uh, put in the cart before the horse. And that is what many people do. In fact, that is what almost, uh, well, what all religions uh, and all ways of life outside of faith in Christ do. They put the cart before the horse by getting the words do and done the wrong way around. Every other religion or most ways of life, expect you to do something in order for salvation to be done. But what makes uh, Christianity or the Bible so much different and so much more wonderful is that we swap it around. Jesus has done everything. He's done it. It is finished, is what he cried on the cross. And all that we do is not to be saved, but is as a response to his love and what he's already done by the power of the Spirit that he gives us. So we don't do anything to be saved. We heard that this morning. There's nothing that we can do. There's no work. There's, no, uh, there's nothing that we uh, can, can give to God as a gift or earn or anything like that to be saved. We know that it's a free gift of God's grace. It is finished. It is done. And out of this uh, new heart that we are given by God when we have faith in Christ. There is a changed life. And so what we do is in obedience to God. And it's not to be saved, it's as a response. We live from the inside out. And in Mark chapter 7, we're going to see how this was completely countercultural. And it is today, isn't it? Everywhere says you have to do something. What must I do? But there's nothing we can do to be saved. And this was a problem in Jesus' time, as we'll see in Mark chapter 7. Last time we were in Mark, a couple of weeks ago, we left Jesus at Gesenaret, where he got off the boat, following those marvellous displays of his divinity. He fed uh, 5,000 uh, with some bread and fish, and he walked on the water, showing his identity as the God of the universe. 
And in fact, we hardly touched on verses 53 to 56 in chapter 6, where Jesus heals many people, where they just touched his, his garment and they were healed. And part of the reason we, we didn't touch much on it is because in Mark's gospel, this kind of thing is just so normal. Jesus uh, healed so many people. Um, th- this was just a, a, an average day in the life of Jesus the Messiah. But this kind of power, as we have seen, often draws crowds of people, but also draws the consternation of the Pharisees who were threatened by Jesus and wanted to kill him. And they would constantly be looking for ways to catch him out, to find some indictment to have him put to death, which they couldn't find and in the end had to make up in order to have him killed. And in the first verse of chapter 7, we read these words. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come up from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples were around the Sea of Galilee, and that was some 80 to 100 miles from Jerusalem. And it seems that the teachers of the law had come up from Jerusalem to help the local Pharisees, who were obviously intimidated by Jesus. And coming from Jerusalem shows that these were prestigious men. They were gifted teachers. And it wouldn't have taken them long to find something wrong with what Jesus and his disciples were doing. So look at verses 2 to 4. They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, you should get one thing straight from the beginning. This has nothing to do with hygiene. I ask my kids um, to wash their hands quite often before they have their dinner because their hands are often dirty, to which they often complain about. But there's nothing ceremonial in me asking my children to wash their hands. So it's not a hygiene issue. And it's true that in the law, there was ceremonial washing before eating. But it was for the priests It wasn't for everyone. None of the disciples were priests. So what was the problem? Well, there are two uh, key words in our passage tonight. And the first one is the word tradition. And it appears six times in the first 13 verses. Tradition. It's been calculated that there are some 613 laws in the Old Testament. One of which was that the priests were to wash their hands. But there were others about not touching dead bodies, about bodily discharges, how to treat lepers, women after childbirth, things you couldn't eat, and so on. And there were reasons for these laws, which we'll talk about later, but the point here is that the rabbis thought that in order not to break the law, they had to put some fences around the law. So if you didn't jump the fence, you couldn't possibly break the law. And these fences were what they're referring to here as the traditions of the elders. And these fences or traditions were written down into a collection called the Mishnah. And later on, and and in this Mishnah, by the way, there there was hundreds and hundreds of extra, uh, extra rules that they had to follow. 
But later on, the rabbis thought that, well, this Mishnah must be uh, a little bit too confusing, so we're going to write a commentary on the Mishnah called the Gemara. And that was an extra set, and they put these two together eventually um, and made the Talmud, which some of you may have heard of. And in, in in a way, you can see how this would have started off quite well. They desired to be holy. Now, we, we, we have uh, rules that perhaps you follow in your own life that are, are things that you do in order to, to, to try and, and live a holy life. For example, you may have a tradition of um, you know, reading so many pages of the Bible each day. It's not, not a bad thing in, in and of itself, is it? It's a good thing to do. But in this case, these, these traditions just became a millstone around the neck of the people. And they became more important than the law in the Bible itself. And to get an idea of uh, what the kind of attitude was, I've got a clip uh, to show you, which some of you saw when we practiced. Uh, hopefully it works, but I know the sunlight doesn't help with what you can see, but hopefully uh, you can hear. So I'll, I'll sit here and hopefully it works. Okay, it wasn't that clear, but that's from The Fiddler on the Roof. And the whole beginning of that film is all about tradition. You may have uh, seen the film. I can recommend uh, watching it. And he says there that where, where do these traditions, where did they get started? And he says, well, I don't know. He doesn't know where the traditions get started. But he says that if they follow the traditions, every man knows who he is and shows his devotion to God. That's what he says in, in the clip. And like uh, Tevye says, this kind, of, this kind of attitude was the same here in the Bible. They believed that following the traditions, of which they didn't even know the origins of, they were doing their bit for God. So in order to have this ceremonial washing, every Jewish house would have a large stone jar uh, near the entrance to wash and purify themselves. Because they thought, well, if I go to the marketplace, I might be in contact with a Gentile and they may have touched a dead body, and so therefore I would be unclean or defiled, and I need to wash my hands. And they looked down on the Gentiles so much that even just a, a touch with them would meant that they, 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 they'd have to wash. So it says in verse 4, they do not eat unless they wash. And it says this, uh, that, that, and this was one of many, many uh, traditions they followed. In fact, it mentions those words, cups, pitchers, and kettles, as an example, because in the Mishnah, 
that book of traditions, there were 30 chapters dedicated to the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. These were the traditions that they had to follow if they were devoted to God. And so in verse 5, we read, uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands? Now Jesus didn't live according to the tradition of the elders. He lived according to the law of his father. And he kept it all perfectly. But look at how he responds to them in verses 6 to 8. And this is uh, quite damning of these traditions and these Pharisees. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You see, washing on the outside won't make you clean. Washing on the outside won't make you clean. They could wash their hands, they could keep these traditions, but it would not make them clean. And it says that they honoured God with their lips, but their hearts, their innermost being was far from God. In fact, in this uh, quote from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, he even calls them, uh, God calls them these people, not my people. These people, people who only wash on the outside, who honour God with their lips, are not God's people. And Jesus applies it to the Pharisees. And if we pursue traditions over pursuing Jesus, we deaden our hearts and are far from him. They had an external uh, piety for God, but no internal love for God. They had substituted the washing of water for purity of heart. They had substituted the traditions of elders for the commandments of God. And they had substituted the worship of lips for the worship of the heart. It was all external, all on the outside. They honoured with their lips. They, they, they say they worship God, but their hearts are far from him. And what does God think of that kind of worship? It says, they worship me in vain. It's all vanity. All an external show with no meaning. God doesn't think anything good of it. It gains you no credit because the teachings are just human rules. It may have started out well with a desire for holiness, but it is just a human rule. And it became more important than the actual commands of God. In fact, this is what Jesus says in verse 8. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. They've let go of God's commands and are holding on to human traditions. Now, we must be careful with our traditions because they can easily become our barometer of spirituality. Having a list of what we do and do not do can give us something to measure ourselves and others against, can't it? And in doing so, we can make our traditions of men commandments of God. I'll give some examples. Uh, For example, giving. Now, the Bible tells us that we should give 
to the Lord generously and cheerfully. And perhaps you have a good rule for how much you give. Say you give 10% of gross or net salary, or you give more than 10%. But you think that whatever you do and your, uh, the way that you structure your giving should be the same for everybody else. Or perhaps with parenting, everyone thinks, uh, well not everybody actually, some people think that their children are perfect and that their way of bringing them up is perfect. I say not everyone because I certainly don't think mine are. But you might have a really good way of disciplining your children and you think, well, that should be for everybody. That should be for everybody. We should discipline our children in this way. This is, this is my list of how I do that. Or perhaps uh, you're an early riser. You get up really early in the morning. And because you're a lark, you think, well, all believers should be up early in the morning uh, to be super spiritual. And there are loads of examples, but the key application is that we should be very careful, very careful when we put the word ought in front of anything that is not directly from the word of God. Even if the practice is good, there should be an, not be an ought in front of it. So I say, the reason I said early in the morning is because I get up early in the morning and some people think it's because I'm super spiritual. It's because it's the only like, peace and quiet I can get during the day. Um, but I could say, well, all Christians should, you ought to be up really early in the morning and worship God. But that's my tradition. And I shouldn't hold on to that more than the commandments of God. And we can pursue these kinds of things more than we are pursuing Jesus. Our list can be our saviour instead of Jesus. And our faith, if we're just following some, some arbitrary list, can become cold and without life. Now we need to have discipline in our Christian lives, that's, that's true. But we must be careful we don't end up like the Pharisees, where we worship God in vain and our hearts are far from him. And additionally, we should not be uh, judging others silently when they don't follow our traditions. This includes what we have said, but uh, for example, things such as prayer positions, musical traditions, dress codes, raising or not raising, clapping or not clapping of hands, all these things are traditions and should not be causes of division and judgment. And even in church, we have our own uh, Pelsall Evangelical Church traditions, so, for example, where you sit each Sunday can be a tradition. I'll say no more on this. Reading the member commitments when we become members is a tradition. The Advent candle we do at Christmas is a tradition. Now, none of these things are bad. In fact, most of them, all of them, are probably pretty good. But none of them should become unchangeable. None of them should become, become things that you come to church for. So that if they did change and say, uh, we're gonna, we, we changed the, the words for the member's commitment, or we didn't do the Advent candle, or someone's sitting in your chair on a Sunday, we shouldn't just leave because these things aren't happening. They're traditions, and we shouldn't hold on to them when, um, when, when they're not the commandments of God. And I'd say as well, just as an aside, the same kind of thing can be applied uh, to church programs or ministries. Ministries are easily added but they're very rarely subtracted, are they? And they can become traditions, and they're only uh, carried on going because we've always done it that way. We've always had this. It's, it's a tradition. And they can become stale and not even expand the kingdom of God. The traditions of man had replaced the commands of God. 
And Jesus actually gives an example of this in verses 9 to 12. So if you would read with me uh, verses 9 to 12, it says, And he continued, You have a fine, uh, fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Well, what does all this mean? Well, you know uh, one of the Ten Commandments is honour your father and mother. You may not know that the punishment for not honouring your father and mother in the Old Testament was actually death. That was was what God had decreed. So God takes the honour of our father and mother very seriously indeed. And in the Bible, honouring our father and mother doesn't just mean speaking nicely about them, not arguing with them when they ask you to do something, or, or something like that. It actually means supporting them throughout their life. So when they get old, it means supporting them financially. Remember, there was no welfare state, no old age pension, no old people's home that you could uh, send people to. And it meant taking them into your home. And this still applies uh, to us today, by the way. We still need to fulfill the command to honour our parents. We need to, throughout their life, As they took care of us when we were young, so we need to be making sure that we're honouring and taking care of them when they get old. But the Jews were not obeying this command because they were following a tradition. The tradition of declaring something korban. And if you declared something korban, it meant that you were dedicating it to God or rather dedicating it to the temple. So if I say this table here uh, was something that I wanted to say korban, I would call Corban over this table, and then when I died, if this table was left, it would go to the temple. And I say if it was left because it was a deferred gift. It wasn't something that they had to give. If they wanted to spend the money or, or use it or give it away in some other way, they could do so. It's a bit like in, in, in my, if, I, if I die and my uh, home can go to my children, I can, I'm still, while I'm alive, able to sell it, release equity and all those kinds of things. But what they were doing was mum and dad uh, were getting old, they couldn't work, so they needed help and support. So they would come to the child and they would ask for for some financial help and what they would do is to say, oh no, uh, Corban! They would dedicate what they were asking, what the parents were asking for, to God. So they would look pious and say, well no, this this is for God, when really they were using that tradition to avoid helping their parents. And Jesus said that this nullified the God-given command to honour your parents. And then he said, you do many things like that. That's just an example. That's just an example. So they were using these traditions to nullify the commands of God. They obeyed the traditions, but in doing so, disobeyed the command of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there was um, uh, things that were dedicated. For example, the, the firstborn son was dedicated, but this... This was just a tradition. This was not in the Old Testament whatsoever. This was a tradition. And we can do things like this. We can, we can do things that seem righteous, but are wrong. And I'll give an example from my own life. Um, without knowing it, we, um, in the past, have had a tradition 
where I, as the husband, would often, or pretty much always, uh, go to church meetings. So if there was a prayer meeting, uh, I would go, and Paula would uh, usually take care of the children. But oftentimes, I know that my attitude often was, I could have said to Paula to go, but that meant I would have to put the children to bed. So it was much easier for me to follow the tradition of me going to the meeting so I didn't have to fulfill my responsibilities as a father. So it was easier for me to go to church than it was to stay at home. And I could use that as an excuse when really I was disobeying the command of God. So now we deliberately take it in turns um, about going to meetings. And our traditions can easily nullify God's commands. Another example is you know, just the command to love one another. For example, if you have a seat in church, it's loving to give that up sometimes, isn't it, if someone else comes? In fact, last weekend, uh, I was at the, uh, a camp. Um, it was training for a youth camp. And I was sharing a room with uh, three other guys. Now, would it have been right that I followed my tradition of having my alarm set for five o'clock in the morning? No. <laughs> it would not have been fair on the other three guys in my room. So I had to not follow that tradition and... Uh, Sleep in. <laughs> what a shame. Um, so, uh, but, but you see what I mean? We can obey our traditions and nullify the commands of God. And perhaps worse than all of this, many people believe that they are believers based on their traditions. The stuff they do on the outside saves them on the inside, so they believe. And if you are relying on anything that you do for your acceptance to God, then Jesus says that you worship God in vain and your heart is far from him. If you're relying on what you do to be saved, you are far from God. And the reason that this is, is in verses 14 to 23. The reason that our hearts are far from God, the reason that external Traditions that do not save us is in verses 14 to 23. Let me read those verses. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Washing on the outside won't make you clean because what is inside is what makes you unclean. And I said the first key word was tradition. The second key word in this passage is the word defile. And in the old NIV, if you've got that, it it uses the word unclean. And it's used seven times in this passage and five times in verses 14 to 23. And the word defile means unclean or dirty, 
but that which is unacceptable to God. And at this point in the passage, Jesus is saying something which is completely radical and absolutely countercultural. And he begins by saying, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. He calls the crowd now, before he was speaking to just the Pharisees, and now he calls the crowd in. And he says, listen. He says, this is for all of you. This is really important. I want you to get this. This is a key point that you need to understand. This is more important than washing hands. And then he says these words. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. I cannot stress to you the shock value that this phrase was to have. It was huge for these people. It was, in, it was massive. I was listening to one sermon and he, he tried to illustrate it by saying it was as if someone comes to us and says, um, or Jesus came to us and says, um, you know, sex before marriage is fine now. It's okay now. And I didn't think it was a great example because that's still wrong. But it's a similar kind of thing in that these things were commands in Leviticus. And Jesus is saying these things, um, are, well, he goes on to say later that all foods are clean. Now, Leviticus uh, says a lot about uncleanness and included laws about eating clean animals. So, for example, uh, many of you will uh, remember that the Jews weren't allowed to eat meat from pigs, which is the well-known one. But they also couldn't eat rabbit, lobster, most insects, camels, and a whole host of other things, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 11. And these food laws were an integral part of the Jewish religion, and they were commands of God. So it was right that they were followed. So again, I cannot stress how countercultural this was. It would have absolutely blown their minds. They just they couldn't believe this. And Jesus was saying that none of this stuff defiles you, but what comes out defiles. Well, what does he mean? Well, the disciples didn't understand either. Because it would have blown their minds too. Look at verse 17. After he left the crowd, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now if you remember, when we looked at the parable of the sower, we said that Jesus often spoke parables to the crowd. Their hearts were hardened, so most of them left. And then a few remained, usually his disciples, as is here, to ask Jesus what the parable meant and he explained it to them. That's what's happening here. And he says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it goes into their heart, uh, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. The disciples were dull. They didn't get this. Nothing that enters a person makes them unclean. Why? Well, the translators here are being very polite, and I'm not going to be impolite and go into too much detail, except to say that Jesus is talking about going to the toilet here. In other words, we eat food, it goes into the stomach, and then it comes out when we go to the loo. What he's saying is that what goes into us physically does not impact the heart. And so Mark adds at this point that Jesus declares all foods clean. It's not that food that made them unclean because it didn't touch their heart. It just goes out into the waste. This was a big deal. In fact, when the church was being established, 
this was a big deal then. It was still a problem. They still were coming to terms, uh, the Jews really, were coming to terms with what Jesus said here. In fact, if you went to Acts chapter 10, which we're not going to go to now, we read how Peter had to be reminded of this because he was only really sharing the gospel with the Jews and God wanted the gospel to go all over and he was, and he was told that he, all, the, but all these foods are clean, that they could eat what they want with whoever they want. This was a big deal for the Jews. But when I was reading this uh, for the first time, uh, when I, I get a passage, I go through it and I try and work out all the bits that I really don't understand um, after the bits that I, I don't understand, which is most of it, I suppose. So I have to, that's why we have to study. But one of the questions I had was, then why is God saying it was unclean in the first place? Has God changed his mind? Well, no, God doesn't change his mind. One of the attributes of God is that he is immutable, which means he's unchanging. He doesn't change his mind. What's happened is that in the New Covenant, the Old Testament laws have been fulfilled in Christ and transformed in the way that they're applied. We have to be discerning when we read the Old Testament about the different laws and how they apply today. There were different kinds of laws, which we don't have time to get into today, but the ritual laws, such as the food laws, were signs that pointed to Christ. They pictured a spiritual reality. So today these practices are discontinued because we have the reality in Christ. So we don't need to avoid foods that would make us unclean, because we have Jesus who makes us clean. It's not the food that makes us unclean. It's not washing hands that makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us holy. These cleanness rules have been fulfilled in Christ. A good way of trying to remember it is the Old Testament was the shadow and Jesus is the substance. Hebrews chapters 8 and 9 tell us more about this. Or the Old Testament is the picture, Jesus is the person. And he was perfectly clean, and in his sacrificial death on the cross for us, he transferred his cleanness to us and took took our uncleanness. So it's not by the foods we avoid, but by the king who we trust in and follow who has imputed his righteousness to us, that makes us clean. So God hasn't changed. Salvation hasn't changed. It's always been through Jesus. It's just in the Old Testament, they looked forward to what Jesus was going to do. In the Gospels, they look at Jesus at what he's done. And we, of course, look back at what Jesus has done. It's always been the same. Christ is the center point. Everything is looking forward to him in the Old Testament. And we look back at him. So the whole Old Testament is a picture. Christ is the person. Or the shadow and the substance. So the Jews were not clean when they abstained from bacon. They were unclean because like all of us, they had unclean hearts. This is what Jesus means in verses 20 to 23. He went on, what comes out of a person 
is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's our hearts that are unclean, isn't it? And that's shown by what comes out of it. If you compare what comes out of the heart with what comes out of the stomach, which is what Jesus is comparing, both are disgusting and both you want to get rid of. And the world says, we are what we do. But Jesus says, we do what we are. That was uh, Kevin DeYoung that said that. The world says, we are what we do. Jesus says, we do what we are. The Pharisees had an external list of traditions. Jesus gives an internal list of what we are really like. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, and who can understand it? Well, the heart is deceitful, and it is beyond cure, but Jesus gets it completely, doesn't he? Jesus gets our heart, and he shows it here. And when we see that list, we see it, and it's disgusting, and it's horrible. But isn't it what's in our hearts? Isn't that what our hearts are truly like outside of Christ? Many people think that Christianity is all about external observances, going to church, doing good deeds. A list makes things easy to manage, doesn't it? But they can't change their hearts with a list. Jesus is the one who gives us a new heart. Many of you may have heard of Louis Washkansky. On the 3rd of December 1967, he was the first human recipient of a heart transplant. It was successful, although he only lived for 18 days because he died of of pneumonia afterwards due to a weakened immune system. Now, nowadays, the prognosis of a heart transplant patient is much better, but still, they die eventually. Jesus doesn't give us a new physical organ, but does transplant his heart, his righteousness, to us. And it lasts, not for 18 days, not for 18 years, or any limited amount of time, it lasts for eternity. And what is more, what comes out of the new heart is not that list that he gives us there. It's the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? We begin to change, to live more like Jesus. And when we get to heaven, we'll be completely like him. We'll be perfect. Louis Washkansky could not save his physical heart with a list any more than we can save our souls with a list of do's and don'ts. As believers, we want external lists sometimes, things that we should and shouldn't do because we can easily measure that, perhaps, can't we? And we can pursue lists rather than pursuing Jesus. But if we pursue Jesus first, that will naturally result in us pleasing him. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have discipline in our Christian lives. I'm not saying we shouldn't set our alarm clocks for the morning. We shouldn't have goals and plans and dreams but we need to pursue Jesus, not our lists. That's the key. 
And Louis Woskansky also could not have had a new physical heart if the doctor didn't give him the operation. And in the same way, we must desire to pass on Jesus to those that need new hearts. Because we can look at the externals of people instead of looking and realising what their hearts are like. We can avoid people because of what they look like, sound like, smell like. Because uh, We can avoid people because of their way of life, their intel- intelligence or not intelligence, and many other things. But we need to realise that people are sinful people. That what comes out of them is what's in their hearts. And they need a new heart. They need Jesus to give them one. And we need to be sharing that with them, don't we? So as we come to communion, I want us just to have a time now of quiet. And just look at that list in chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Let's look at what our hearts were really like before Jesus took that list and placed it on himself and gave us a heart transplant, a new heart. And after we've read that list, perhaps some of you read that and think, I still struggle with some of these sins. Because we do, don't we? We still struggle with sin because God is working in us to make us more like Jesus. It's a, it's a process. We're not at the finish yet. So as we read this list, perhaps you see some sins that you struggle with. We're going to sing uh, before communion, create in me a clean heart, O God. So let's um, have a time of, of silence as we look at that list, just for a, just a minute, and then the musicians will lead us as we sing these words of scripture before we have communion. <clears throat>